Well, welcome to episode 60. Uh, if you've been with us for that long journey, thank you so much for staying <laughs> with the professor and the hack. And if you're new to us, well, uh, join in. Uh, the professor is uh, Peter Van Onselen, little whiskery as we turn 60. And I am the hack, Hugh Rimminson. Um, we are, I don't think we're getting paid for this um, uh, PBO, this podcast. Well, you may be, but no, um, well, <laughs> unless you've got a deal, I don't know about, I think we're in the same boat. <laughs> and, and it puts us into the same boat as a lot of people right now. As the jobs figures come out, there, there are, there are people doing things and not getting paid for it. There are a lot of people who are giving up on work altogether, but the overarching headline rate is that the jobs rate unemployment rate was worse than expected when it came out this week at 7.1% nationally. And that is really it distorts as much as it reveals the true story of this uh, pandemic recession that we're in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 7.1% is not the number of people who most Australians would categorise as unemployed. But on the ABS data, it comes in at 7.1%. I was talking to the Bureau in Canberra about this, sort of explaining how that works, because more Australians have lost their jobs, uh, 227,000 in the last month, than are listed as having joined the ranks of the unemployed with that figure going from 6.2% to 7.1%. And, and a member of the Bureau was asking, how does that actually work? The answer to that comes back to the participation rate. Fewer Australians are actually actively looking for work. And what does that mean? Well, that means that those Australians have just given up looking for work. They've probably made a calculation having lost their jobs that there aren't jobs out there. They don't qualify for unemployment benefits probably because of a spouse. So they're becoming the home carer, for example, or they've just decided not to even enter the category of people that are seeking employment. So it masks the true extent of the number. So I think it was Brendan O'Connor as the shadow employment minister. He made the point that if those people were included, 7.1% would actually be 11.3%, which is a much higher unemployment rate. And by the way, that used to be at one point in our history, how we calculated the unemployment rate. So 7.1% doesn't count people who aren't looking for work. It also doesn't count people who are underemployed. And what I mean by that is somebody that might be working a day a week, who if they had the option, would be working five days a week or, or more than they currently are. That's a massive addition. And all of this, Hugh, is before we even consider the millions of Australians who are still in jobs because of JobKeeper. And when that comes off in September, if not a little earlier for some, uh, we will see, I suspect, a massive hike in the unemployment rate as well. So the situation, make no mistake, is so much dire uh, than a lot of people perhaps realise, people that haven't yet lost their job don't realise, or indeed that when you look at that headline figure of 7.1%, then that actually suggests... So the April figure had 607,000 people losing their jobs. I'm going to take the optimist argument here, uh, accepting everything that you said there as being dead true. May, it was down to $227,000. So the steepness of the fall is at least leveling out. But the point you make there about JobKeeper um, being dropped off, the signals out of that have been somewhat mixed, but nevertheless, it seems from it as if um, the prime minister is is pretty pretty solid on his September end date for JobKeeper. Mm. What happens at that point? Is there going to be a second wave under another name of government interventions, perhaps more targeted to sectors? Or are we likely to see uh, those queues outside Centrelink all over again? I, I think we're going to get both of those elements, Hugh, because I, I will be 
gobsmacked if there's not some other variety that replaces JobKeeper, but it'll be far less uh, wide ranging and it will be highly targeted to industries like, you know, perhaps the tourism industry as, as an obvious one uh, that are heavily affected by the ongoing uh, limits of international travel and, and perhaps some of the limits that the post-pandemic period create as well. So they will have, I think, you know, versions of JobKeeper going forward, but it'll be on such a lower scale, which means that of the 3 million people who are currently on JobKeeper, you know, you'd expect the overwhelming majority of them, if not much more than that, uh, will end up coming off of it. And then you have the question of, well, what does that do? Well, some businesses will be back on their feet. They'll be able to keep their people employed. Others simply won't. Uh, and you'll have more people joining the unemployment queues. There's no doubt about that. What we don't know, the big unknown, is what the quantum is. You know, come September, are we going to see hundreds of thousands joining the jobless queues? Or are we going to see upward of a million in the wake of all of that government support coming off? That's the big unknown that will drive, I guess, just how high this unemployment number gets. And the other thing is for those who, who are not eligible for JobKeeper but have lost their jobs, who've been on the job seeker. Uh, payments, those have been at double the normal rate mm. as, as part of an emergency measure. Uh, we're seeing some signals from the government that there will, it won't drop all the way back to where it was before. There's a recognition that that is unsustainable for those individuals. It would be catastrophic to have everyone down on those, those poor levels. What are you mm. hearing and what's your sense? Yeah. Of, I mean, look, off? yeah. We're definitely being told that it won't drop off to that level that it was previously. It's at about $1,100 now, and it used to be at five fifty if you include top-ups from the base amount, you know, a bit of rent assistance and, and so on. Um, it can get as low as into the, the mid-400s uh, rather than, than, you know, the mid-fives. Now, it won't go back to the mid-500s, but it won't be enormously higher than that is what I hear. So, you know, people that have never experienced this before and, and gone to $1,100 a fortnight as a payment, they're going to get a really rude shock, even with a slight increase in the old new start allowance when it drops from, let's say, $1,100 to $600 or $650 if, if people are incredibly lucky. I can't be, see it being that much more than that. So that's a really good point, Hugh. You know, <laughs> it's not just that you've got ballooning unemployment numbers, but the people that are on those allowances at the moment who are being added to that are getting an artificial suggestion of what government support is. And they would already be finding that government support tough, obviously, because they're used to living on an income that would be much larger than that, you know, if they've gone from employment to unemployment. Sure. And, and I guess there's that, there's that youth unemployment thing. We'll get back to this a little bit. But well, that's that a huge about number the, too. The share houses and, and people who are, who are used to having kind of um, intermittent coming out of a university or out of high school even, and used to having sort of low and intermittent income are going to struggle as, as that is often a difficult phase of life. Um, but I just wonder about those people, the families with kids, with mortgages, when they suddenly find that they're dropping down to, you know, at or near uh, a job seeker payment, something which they wouldn't have contemplated and what that might mean. I think some anguish might be coming up the turnpike, but on the youth unemployment, 16.1%. Uh, that's the official rate. It's it's been really hard hit. That sector, fifteen to twenty four year olds, really hard hit by this pandemic. They're used to those uh, casual jobs in hospitality, which have disappeared, and tourism, which have disappeared. Uh, we're seeing already that a lot of them are making two choices. One is the recruitment uh, inquiries into the defence force 
have gone steeply up. People mm. looking, so Jesus, there's nothing else. Let's go for the army. The other one being is for university applications, which have also doubled up. But universities for university systems are up for their biggest reform in well over a decade with the suggestion that some courses are going to cost more than 100% more. Oh, the, the university reforms, which, you know, uh, you've got Dan T in, uh, on Friday uh, being today uh, for us doing this, talking at the National Press Club. Uh, these reforms are really interesting because they've got a lot of problems within them, I think, in terms of unintended consequences. I'm not sure how well thought out they are, frankly, on, on the reading of them that I've had so far. And equally, I certainly get the impression that the level of consultation uh, is not as great as it otherwise might have been. What the government's trying to do in principle is something that I think a lot of Australians would not have a problem with, which is we are trying to make it cheaper for you to do a degree, which is one where jobs are available in the aftermath. Engineering, teaching, architecture they've got in there even though that's absolutely not true uh and you know nursing and so on and to do that they're making those degrees cheaper for students but the flip side to that is they're making it much more expensive to study arts law commerce and those sort of degrees now conceptually a lot of australians would be okay about that because they'd say yeah i want people to go to university and do degrees which are more beneficial to society in terms of what you do at the other side and more needed by society and in the STEM era that we're in, uh, your employment prospects go up. In theory, sounds great. But let's look at the practice of it, Hugh. First up, this is the government picking winners in making assumptions about employment prospects in the aftermath of a degree. Three years ago, if you graduated with an engineering degree during the mining downturn, you ain't getting a job. Experienced engineers were losing their jobs, much less new graduates with no experience. Now that's picked up again because the mining boom is, is back in a relatively full flight over in WA. But the point is that is cyclical. Then there's something like teaching. They say, well, we've got a demand for teachers. That is true. However, twice as many people graduate from university as they need in the teaching profession. But the reason they've got a shortfall in the teaching profession is people that get the teaching degree don't want to teach because of the bad conditions in a lot of public schools for teachers, salary issues, and so on. So it doesn't necessarily accord that if you get the degree, there is the demand in five years or 10 years as there is now, or indeed that if you get that degree, you necessarily go and practice in that area. Nursing degrees, people that get nursing degrees often go into some form of professional healthcare, but not nursing specifically because of the salary and the conditions. So, I'm not sure that they've necessarily got that right, but here's the big one, Hugh. This is the really big one. They are going to make the position, the fiscal position of universities worse as an unintended consequence by going down this path. And I'll tell you why. When universities deliver architecture or engineering degrees or sciences of different types, they are the ones that cost more per student to deliver because you've got labs and sophisticated technology as part of the teaching process. The government funds those individual students, but not to the tune of what it costs the university to deliver the degree. So the university tops up the difference. How does it do that? Through two ways, through international students, who are largely no more because of the pandemic, or through people studying the cheaper degrees to teach, arts, law, commerce, the ones where you can sit in a filthy lecture theatre with a PowerPoint, and that's all you need. There's no laboratory testing and all those expensive elements. But they're making those degrees, arts, law and commerce, more expensive for students 
So that means fewer students may choose to do those courses that are the cash cow ones that help fund the more expensive ones where more and more students are gonna be doing them because they're cheaper for the student even if the university is having to cover the cost difference. Do you get my point? This is uh, potentially gonna yeah. create a huge problem. Yeah, absolutely. And just another one which caught my eye is that uh, it being reported reasonably authoritatively what Dan Tien will say as we speak, he hasn't said it yet, but that uh, the, the, where the costs are going to be cheapest, Dan Tien says it's that they want the degrees to go with the employment prospects are expected to grow over time. So maths, it's going to be 62% cheaper to get that degree, but also agriculture it's going to be 62% cheaper to get that degree. Mm. So is the argument being made that there'll be as many jobs in agriculture in future, you know, for people with science degrees, as opposed to those who say might drive a, a, a tractor or have other, other purposes and employment somewhere in the farm sector, um, that this sort of uh, academic training for agriculture is going to be where the jobs are really going to be growing over the next, uh, over the next while? Or is that yet another one of those once you've picked your winners, you also then, you know, feed your electoral mouths. Oh, and- oh, there's pl- the, the, yeah, there's plenty of electoral politics in this. I mean, the agricultural one is obviously a sop to the nationals. It, it, look, it, it may be true that there are more jobs in the agricultural sector. Let's hope so. You know, the Australian food bowl capacity and all the rest of it. But I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. It's certainly more of a, a, a sop to the nationals. And equally, the cutting of funding to arts uh, a lot of people uh, on the right would just like that for the sake of it ideologically. Uh, and they, the government, the coalition government does believe that, you know, arts faculties are, you know, sort of homegrown uh, anti-coalition areas. And, and to some extent, they're, they're not wrong about that. But, but if that's what's driving it, that's more problematic. My issue well, is... But, but also, it also goes, sorry, it also goes to another point, and that is this argument that's been made is it's actually the soft skills. It's the ability to understand someone else's opinion, to give a mm. kind of a conceptual uh, framework to, to arguments that people make um, is where the value of an arts degree is. And, you know, that these are actually central to the skills that you need as an adult contributing in the, in yeah, the economy oh, is to have and those what they're going to do what they're going to do is the only people that are going to make decisions to go into those more expensive degrees with less certain employment prospects like arts for example uh, are going to be wealthier people who can make that decision and therefore you're going to turn it into an elite enterprise to get a broader education in the humanities, which is slightly concerning. It's quite aristocratic and old fashioned. Um, but it, it's, you know, because people with lower socioeconomic backgrounds are going to look at those fee structures and say, well, no, I'm going to pick one of the other ones. Now, at one level, if they are right about employment prospects, a lot of Australians will be okay about that. My problem is, even if they are right, the unintended consequences that they are making the fiscal burden on universities that much more acute right at a time where they're losing all that revenue from international students because they are driving students that they are using the, the the process of demand to drive students you know through the incentive process to drive students towards the more expensive degrees for universities to deliver which means that there is more of a cost shortfall for unis and they are driving students away from the degrees that are cheaper for unis to deliver but by putting those costs up for students in terms of their load as per hex the students are therefore going to be less inclined to do those cheaper degrees which are the ones that subsidize the unis being able to have engineering faculties and architecture schools so what will unis do 
some universities, GO8 unis can't do this, but the non-GO8 unis may just, and this is where it could have the complete opposite effect for the government. Non-GO8 unis might just say, you know what? We're gonna close uh, engineering faculty. We're gonna close uh, school of architecture because we just can't fund the additional students that are getting shoved into that, which are putting us more and more out of pocket during a tough fiscal time. If that happens, then the government has had the exact opposite effect of its aim of pushing more people into those degrees because there will be fewer options for people to do those degrees because fewer universities will actually be offering them. Well, it's got to get through the Senate, so expect some fireworks ahead over that. That'll well, on that, you let's just forget the whole thing, by the way. Anyone listening, don't worry about it because it's not going to get through the Senate. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Parliament's been uh, lively in other grounds, and one of them is uh, a lot of this uh, fallout still from the branch stacking issues in Victoria. Let's take a quick break. We'll talk about that in just a moment, Peter. What do Tom Jones, Borat and Eddie Munster all have in common? You can hear them all on the Starstruck with Angela Bishop podcast. I'll give you all the behind-the-scenes goss on what went on with some of my most fascinating interviews over the years. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to episode 60. It's a big round number of The Professor and the Hack with uh, me, the Hack, Hugh Remington. Peter Van Onselen is the prof. Um, it, it all got very willing in Parliament. In fact, it's getting very willing within the Labour Party over this uh, branch stacking mess that we've seen coming up out of Victoria. Um, where's it sitting at the moment? There's certainly now this kind of release, it would appear, of dirt files as, uh, as all these backroom thugs uh, settle scores with each other. Oh, look, it's, I mean, it's, it's just, it's Lord of the Flies uh, being exposed in terms of how party politics works. And you know what it really is? I mean, the better way to put it is, this is how the sausages are made, Hugh, whether people like it or not. And it is distasteful in the extreme. Who would eat a sausage if they sat there and watched how the hell it gets made? Well, who would ever trust their politi politicians again and have respect for the political class as they watch these text messages come out? Don't think uh, that Mr Byrne, you know, the Labor member whose texts are being released out of spite, by the way, let's be clear about that, uh, by uh, now factional opponents because of everything that's been going on down in Victoria. Uh, those texts are not, you know, an isolated example. He's not the only one doing this. We all saw that video of Kevin Rudd uh, when he was trying to speak Mandarin and was swearing in between it. Uh, these are but a snapshot of the viciousness and the foul language that goes on behind the scenes uh, amongst the political class. Now, I think people can forget the odd F-bomb getting dropped or even the odd expletive that is quite descriptive and graphic. Uh, but when it makes clearly sexist and derogatory remarks, or more accurately even, when it is such that it leaves you realising how petty the political point scoring and the brawling behind the scenes is, you just throw your hands up and think, oh my God, these are the people that we're choosing between to run the country. You imagine that it can't be doing anything particularly for Labour Party membership drives. Emma Hussar was on Radio National, uh, herself a victim of uh, factional mm. messiness as she uh, decided not to go, not to run again for the seat of Lindsay, the marginal seat. Uh, she was pointing out something which people don't necessarily get, and that is that if you want to become a member of the Labour Party, you sign up and you pay your fees, and that's fine. But if you want to actually become really active in the, mem in the party, then there comes a threshold point quite soon afterwards when someone says, okay, so which faction are you joining? And you have to make a call on that if you want to do anything. And at that point, you choose your faction and then you pay another fee 
a sort of an unofficial fee, but nevertheless compulsory <laughs> fee to join and and be then forever and for life locked into that faction, which means that you then must vote uh, as the faction decides. You can have your arguments within the factional forums, I suppose, but uh, but in the end, you become a wholly owned member of that faction. Um, people change factions. You know, Julia Gillard was from the left. She managed to get some backing from the right to get to the prime ministership. So these things are not utterly uh, unshiftable, but that seems to be the rather dismal way in which you take someone with energy for politics and for change and for making the world a better place and all those cool things, the point at which you essentially get sort of locked in under the armpit of some sweaty bloke, usually with a whole bunch of phone numbers in his, you know, in his phone and, uh, and numbers in his head. Uh, and, and this is how your political career and your political activism develops. It's a horrible, dispiriting insight into the process. Look, it certainly is. <laughs> and it's, it's, yeah, look, you know, one of the problems with Labour's factionalism is once upon a time, it was useful for the party because it created a level of discipline and collective strength. Uh, not just within the party to take positions in groupings, but then once those decisions were made, uh, then the party as a whole took an equally collective position to the public to try to argue for or against it. But that was sort of in the days almost where the factions were important, but the drivers of policy were more ideological uh, with genuine leadership underpinning it. Now the factions seem to be about nothing but patriarchy uh, or in some cases matriarchy but generally patriarchy and in other words it's about patronage as well and who holds what power and why rather than for what purpose so i think that labor's got a bigger problem here than the coalition there are you know, versions of factions in both sides of politics but they're more rigid in the labor party than they are in the in the liberal party and i think that rigidity is more of a problem now than it was in the past so how much is this going to be a damage to uh, Anthony Albanese? We saw uh, the Prime Minister on the floor of Parliament really trying to hook uh, the Labour leader into the notion of corruption. Talk us through that. Well, he's in a weird situation. He either tries to do something about it, and the last Labour leader to seriously try to do something about it was actually Simon Crean, and he actually made some relatively important changes around Labour Party structures. Uh, which took away some of the clout of unions and by extension to some extent factions. But of course he got no public credit for that. And ultimately he made enemies within the party and add that to his own nat natural lack of charisma that he had as a leader. And it didn't help him obtain the prime ministership. Then you've got someone like Kevin Rudd who belatedly did things in this space, but only really is almost a payback for what the factions did to him, removing him as prime minister. Before he became prime minister, he deliberately shoved all this stuff out of view, targeted the odd individual whose head bobbed up that had to be knocked down so that he could in the public's eye look like he was dealing with this, but he didn't really deal with the systemic issues. And as a result, he ultimately brought undone by them. So you, you, you bring that together and you look at Albo and you go, well, what happens here? If he tries to tackle it, he probably helps his party, but doesn't help himself. If he ignores it and superficially is perceived to tackle it, then he might get some points out of that. But ultimately, the problem doesn't go away and it'll come back to bite him at some point. If it bites him before the election, then it prevents him becoming prime minister or it becomes another barrier. If it bites him after the election, then he becomes another victim of the factional structures uh, as a newly minted uh, Labor prime minister.
So what was it that happened between the Prime Minister and the Speaker? Um, talk us through that. Oh, that was fascinating. Okay, so what happened was uh, the, the Prime Minister used the word corruption. Uh, now, he wanted to clarify that he wasn't accusing Anthony Albanese of corruption. He was using the word and repeating a Labour member, the member for Holt, who had used the word corruption as well, which is why he was about to try to argue it wasn't unparliamentary for him to do it. But the standing orders are very clear that you can't uh, you know, accuse someone of that. And the speaker, Tony Smith, who's a very independent speaker, despite obviously being a member of the government in the sense that he's a Liberal MP, uh, he instantly pulled the Prime Minister up. And the Prime Minister wanted to explain himself because he wanted to make clear that he doesn't need to withdraw this because... I didn't say it as per what would be in violation of the standing orders, but the speaker was having none of it. And the speaker came down hard on the prime minister with his authority. And he looked viciously towards him and, and he was really looking like he was about to, you know, reel. And he did reel the prime minister in hard, but then Scott Morrison, he forgot that the prime minister doesn't have authority over the speaker. And he bit back hard and kept talking over the speaker and the speaker tried to shut him down, but ultimately Smith pushed hard and then backed away at the last moment. And the Prime Minister did withdraw, but he got the floor for a 20 or 30 second explainer about what he meant before then saying, I'll help the Speaker out and I'll withdraw. But really, and this is no reflection on Tony Smith because I think he's very good, but that should have been the moment where for the first time, if not ever, for the first time that I can recall, that a Speaker kicked a Prime Minister out of the House because Scott Morrison defied the Speaker talked over him before eventually withdrawing and frankly it was disgraceful and it was the prime minister forgetting that he ain't got authority over the speaker mate your authority is over your backbenchers and your ministers as their party leader the speaker sits away from you removed and you know i don't blame tony smith for not kicking him out he was very strong with him. So good on him for that. And I think most Labor people would agree. But I tell you what, I reckon if he had his time again, he balked a little bit at the power of the Prime Minister. I think if Tony Smith had his time again, he would have kicked him out of that parliament. Yeah, that's really interesting because I did watch that. And of course, you've only got, if you're not in the in the house yourself, in the chamber yourself, you've only got the TV coverage of it. And of course, it cuts between one one camera angle and the other. And you could mm. definitely see in Tony Smith, the speaker, you could see he wasn't even interested in hearing Labour's arguments against the Prime Minister. He basically he said, no, to. no, no, yeah. you, you on the Labour Labour seats, you, you sit down, you shut up. I'm taking this on with the Prime Minister. And his oh, eyes yeah. were quite alive at that moment when he when he took him on and you could see uh, from Morrison he had uh, Morrison felt that it was an overreaction by the speaker he seemed to be because he was so keen to explain himself not yep. recognizing it. you say that that's it, it's for the speaker to decide who gets to explain and who gets to just sit down and shut up um, but do you think that Morrison actually had a point that he was quoting someone oh else? yeah 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 let, let, me, let me be clear I think actually this is the kind of the irony of it I think Morrison on the argument was in the right because he was quoting somebody else and his desperation to explain himself, he actually had a point. Okay. But that's something, as we know, per the standing orders, there is a time immediately after question time for expl explanations. And that's when Morrison could do that. The speaker was, I think on the issue wrong, right? 
but he'd made a call and he was going hard at the Prime Minister and it is damn well not the Prime Minister's place to defy the Speaker. I know this is old-fashioned Westminster stuff here, but political science-wise, I know you know this, Hugh, it is not his bloody place, mate. Sit down, shut up. The Speaker tells you what to do. And if you don't do it, get the hell out of that chamber, buddy. And that's what should have happened to the Prime Minister. Now, I don't attack Tony Smith for that because this is real power politics, right? He's a Liberal MP. He's sitting in the Speaker's chair. I think it is unprecedented for a Speaker to kick a Prime Minister out. But Morrison shut the Speaker down and explained himself in defiance of the Speaker before eventually withdrawing. The Speaker should have told him to get his ass out of the damn Parliament. That's my opinion it is interesting as to th- those institutional elements. And, of course, conservatives are supposed to be supporters of institutions. And so they had that thing that ran in the background of it as the prime minister. I, I loved it, Hugh. I loved it. I mean, as a, as a junkie of, of parliamentary procedures, I was glued to my screen watching this. You're, you're the Matty Johns bring back the Biff um, <laughs> moment if this was uh, NRL, for those who know the NRL references. Uh, uh, there certainly was a biff and an unusual biff there in Parliament. We're and out of time. I think, and, and I think oh, still, I know we're, but we, we might get cut off. But in fairness to the Prime Minister, I think if he had his time again, he'd look at that and go, wow, yeah, okay, I really should have shut up. And I wouldn't be surprised if he'd spoken to Tony Smith privately and apologised to him. I don't know that. Um, but, you know, he, 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 he stuffed up. He did stuff up. Um, but guess what? When you're a mile ahead in the opinion polls and the procedures of Parliament are inside the bubble, you can afford to stuff up. Quite right. And the issues on, around the kitchen tables are about those jobs. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're under 25, uh, it, it might be about your university courses, how you navigate them next little while. There's plenty to talk about uh, in the days ahead. PVO, a pleasure as always. Good chatting. Stay well. been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Help. Please. Please help. What? What is it? Uh, it's... Oh, you wouldn't be able to help me anyway. Well, of course I can help. I'd do anything to help you. It's just... My favourite 10 Speaks podcast isn't releasing another episode for three more days. For God's sakes, man! Just go and listen to some of their other amazing content. Go to the 10 Speaks page on 10Play to see all that amazing content that guy was talking about. 10 Speaks.